Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 115 of Mystic Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part two of episode number 115 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or in iHeartRadio, or in Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm just going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 24-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. Each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and put the show in two parts. First part of the show is talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks, and then do my own personal analysis on the range of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the musicians in the track, whether it be the studio musicians or the band members themselves, um, the song where they wrote the history behind the song, where they wrote the song, and the artist that recorded it, the producer that produced it, what studio the song was recorded at, where that studio was located at, and uh, the label the song was released on, and the year and month the song was released, and the peak position the song made up originally on the Billboard Hot 100 charts when it first came out, and where it was recorded, the city where it was recorded, and all that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on this week's episode of the podcast, um, I want to let you guys know uh, a couple things. I'm very close to doing my next interview for my podcast and again it might be a thing where she's asking me questions about music from the 60s and she's someone that's around my age uh i think that might happen next week i'll keep you guys posted on that uh i don't have this thing secured yet uh but also my birthday is coming up and i might not be doing an episode that week so i might just take that week off you know because it's my birthday i do it pretty much every year but I'm probably going to take that week off for my birthday. So you can expect one episode next week. And I think I might take the week after that off, you know, so that way I can just, you know, enjoy myself for my birthday, even though it might not be much because of COVID. But that's besides the point. The other thing I want to let you guys know is that um, I, I have a really cool opportunity that's currently in the talks for me right now. And it will be so cool because imagine, you know, being able to listen to a podcast, but have visuals surrounding it. So you're not just listening to me talk, you know, about this stuff. You're actually seeing really cool stuff from, you know, all the music I've talked about on my podcast so far, mainly some, you know, some of the stuff I've mentioned where it might not be as well known to the general public as, you know, people would think, um, you know, imagine like actually seeing art, actual artifacts from those artists or producers who produce that stuff. And, you know, imagine seeing that and me, you know, possibly doing what I do in my podcast, except I I do it live and I do it in front of a possibly a big audience and have it be more visual thing. Well, that's basically what uh, I might be doing soon because currently uh, the school I'm going to right now, which is a music school, by the way. Uh, they are currently pitching the idea of me possibly 
creating and hosting my own virtual exhibit on 60s music at the Grammy Museum. Now, this is not exactly set in stone yet. It's not a for sure thing. Uh, they just finished pitching their ideas to them about me doing that over there, and now they're just waiting for the go-ahead from them. So uh, they don't know if it's going to happen yet, but they said they wouldn't let me know as soon as they know, and that should be before the end of this year. So please keep me in your thoughts, and please send some good vibes my way, and you know, hopefully I get it, because that would be amazing. You know, because that would really solidify myself as someone of an authority, of someone who really knows their stuff about 60s music. That would just be incredible. Um, and yeah, so also, uh, as regard to, regarding to my book, my first book with word transcriptions in my podcast, I got to do some more work to it. It's not quite ready to be sent off to the girl that said she would proofread and edit it. I still got to do some more stuff to it. So um, I was hoping to have it out and published by the end of this year, but... You know, it's going to take more time and effort on my end to really get it tight and really to get it read really well before I even consider sending it to a publisher. So uh, I you can definitely expect a release date for that book by next year for sure, because I don't think it will be done and ready by the end of this year. I think it's going to take some more time for me to do that, uh, you know, so definitely by next year it'll be out. Um, but yeah, so that's currently what's happening with that. Um, you know, and I might have to do like a GoFundMe campaign. So, uh, I'm not quite sure yet. I'm still trying to figure that out. But if I do that, I love it. If you guys could support me on that, I'll link that as soon as I have that set up. But, uh, you know, I just got to figure some other stuff out first, but, um, you know, I'll definitely keep you guys posted with that. So, um, that's what's currently happening with me and, uh, let's get started in this week's episode. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's artist and song, which is Peggy Scott and JoJo Benson's Lover's Holiday. And while we're at it, let's talk about the history behind the city where the song was recorded. Um, because the song was recorded in a city that you wouldn't necessarily expect a record like this to come out of. You would think a record like this was recorded like in Memphis or Muscle Shoals or, you know, some really cool southern city that specialized in R&B music. But the fact of the matter is is that this song came from a city that for years and years and years only pretty much specialized in white country music. And if you're thinking, Sam, this was recorded in Nashville? And I'm like, yeah, it was. That's right. Yeah, this was this song was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's just amazing to think about that because... You know, when you think of the whole history and the whole culture behind Nashville and that entire city and every and all the and it's long running history, everything from the Grand Ole Opry to right now, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, it, it, it's based itself off of white country music. So, you know, the whole history, the whole musical history of Nashville has been totally whitewashed. And, you know, that is 1000 percent true. And. You know, when you think about it, when you think about all the great music that came out of Nashville, what doesn't get talked about and what doesn't get discussed when people talk about the history of the music scene in Nashville, people people don't really mention is the R&B music that came out of Nashville. Because basically, when people talk about the history of, of Nashville as far as, you know, Music City is concerned, because basically that's what it's nicknames for. I mean, literally, you know, there was a whole street in Nashville known as Music Row. Um, 
basically when people talk about that, it's all about the country music. It's all about, you know, the George Joneses and the, and, you know, and the, and the, and the Dalton Laws and the Frank Joneses and, you know, all the, all the different, uh, country artists, uh, David Houston. I mean, just, you know, Tammy Wynette, I mean, Dolly Parton, I mean, so much of the, of people, when people talk about Nashville, it's only about country music, but, People often forget about the R&B music that came out of there, too. And even though there wasn't a whole lot of it, there are some really interesting, uh, very, very well-known hit songs that came out of the Nashville R&B music scene. And, you know, there was definitely, you know, R&B music, you know, was a very much appreciated genre in Nashville in in, in the 60s. It wasn't all country music, but... There's a reason why country music pretty much ruled that city for most of the early 60s, clear through the mid 60s, and why we didn't really get to hear any R&B music from Nashville until the late 60s. And I'm going to explain to you about that right now. Okay, so why you don't really hear too much about the R&B scene in Nashville, you know, and why that sort of that part of history is almost kind of swept under the rug, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that. Uh, there's a lot of systemic racism that happened in Nashville in the 60s. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was very much a segregated city in uh, that time. And, you know, for the fact, you know, just the fact that white musicians were given more opportunity and more leverage in the music industry in the early 60s in Nashville more than black musicians. Uh, white musicians ruled Nashville in the early 60s. I mean, you think about all those great Roy Orbison uh, records and Brenda Lee and the Everly Brothers and Leroy Van Dyke and Roger Miller and, you know, all that all that music. I mean, Dickie Lee, all that great pop music that came from Nashville in the early 60s, it was all dominated by white musicians and songwriters, um, you know. And, you know, honestly, the the, the powers that be at the, at the record labels, or at least... The you know the ma- the three majors you know Columbia RCA and uh, the you know those those two specific major labels that had uh, you know offices in Nashville the power is that the the A and R heads and the producers that were working out of Nashville for those major labels they were all white musicians uh, they were all white guys so if you as you can imagine there really wasn't any opportunities major opportunities for white musicians to have, I mean sorry for black musicians to have any kind of success in Nashville in the early 60s with when you have the A&R heads and the producers and all the musicians and all the artists being white in uh, the early 60s and mid mid 60s as well and there's actually it's actually kind of interesting if you think about it because there is a sharp contrast between uh, Nashville and Memphis and both those cities are both in Tennessee I mean they're both cities located in the same state. Uh, you know, obviously Nashville was totally whitewashed in the early 60s. And, you know, it was very hard for black musicians to have any real kind of commercial success in Nashville for that particular reason. But in Memphis, it was a completely different story. I mean, Stax, you know, had, it was all black artists on Stax. I mean, Carla Thomas, Rufus Thomas, Booker T and the MGs. In fact, it was more of a it was more of a mulatto thing going on in uh in in Memphis because you had black and white musicians playing together for Stax Records so that was definitely more of a integrated kind of an outfit that was happening in uh in uh basically in Memphis at the time but that definitely was not happening in Nashville in the early sixties. Um, 
But, you know, they're definitely black music. The R&B stuff definitely was popular, you know, in Nashville. It's just that the black musicians weren't in the early 60s, weren't given very much opportunity to have any major success with. And there's a couple of exceptions to this. Uh, One of the first major artists to have uh, to record in Nashville uh, one of the first black R&B artists to have pretty big hits, you know, in Nashville with all white musicians backing him up was Brooke Benson. And uh, Brooke Benton actually ties in with uh, the the artist, the, the, the duo I'm doing this week. Actually, it was this weekend last week, uh, Peggy Scott and Jojo Benson. Uh, you know, Brooke Benton has a huge tie in with uh, Peggy Scott and Jojo Benson. I'll explain to that. Explain you that in a minute, but basically, Brooke Ben uh, came to Nashville in 1962. Um, one of the first hits that he recorded over there was a song called "Hotel Happiness," and that was recorded with all white musicians, basically with the same guys who backed up, like you know, Roy Orbison and Leroy Van Dyke and Ray Stevens and you know the Everly Brothers, and it was the same exact musicians who backed up all the classic, uh, you know, country white country pop musicians in nashville all the people backed up like skier davis he record he went to nashville in 1962 and recorded with those musicians and uh you know and all that stuff was on released on the mercury label and he actually had a couple decent hits you know that were recorded in nashville at that point he didn't really do too much in nashville most of his stuff was being recorded in new york you know with uh with clyde otis being the producer um i think clyde otis did a lot of his nashville stuff too but but that's the size of point um in 1962 and 63 brooke ben recorded quite a few hits in nashville the most notable one being hotel happiness but another one that people often forget about was a song called my true confessions uh, My True Confessions, I believe, had the Nina Curse singers backing him up, and also Ray Stevens was involved with the recording with the recording session for that song. Um, so those were two notable hits that were recorded in Nashville and recorded by at the time black R and B soul singer, which was Brooke Benton, and that you know that was really the first time that happened, you know, um, in Nashville. Um, and while we're at it, since we're on that subject, let's fast forward a couple years later and talk about the guy that was a f- that was really behind. You know, basically, uh, Brooke Ben even going to Nashville in the first place. And he was the guy that also had a lot to do with artists I did last week and this week, too. So another really early example of a black R&B musician recording in Nashville with a lot of the same white musicians who backed up, you know, all the big white country pop artists in Nashville like Cedar Davis and Roy Orbison and the Everly Brothers and Ray Stevens. And by the way, Ray Stevens actually co-wrote My True Confessions. Another really early example, and this is a pretty big hit song, too. This came out the same year as Hotel Happiness. Uh, and this song was called Lover Please. It was recorded by an artist named Clyde McFadder. Uh, Clyde McFadder used to be the lead vocalist for the Drifters in the 50s. And he actually, like many singers that sang for the Drifters, and I'll talk more about this when I actually talk about the Drifters, but like many lead vocalists who sang for the Drifters, he, he left the group and had a huge solo career. Um, and that was one of the last big hit songs that he had in his solo career. And that was also recorded in Nashville. And if you're wondering, so what's the connection between Clyde McFadder's lover, please? Cause again, like that was also, that was recorded in Nashville with a lot of the same musicians who probably were on book Ben's my true confessions and hotel happiness. So what is the connection between those two specific records? 
Well, it has to do with the fact it has to do with one specific label and one specific A&R man who producer who made those two records happen. And that guy was Shelby Singleton. Shelby Singleton basically um, became the head of A&R in Nashville in the early 60s. And, you know, Shelby Singleton actually became the president of A&R at Mercury Records in the 60s. But he was so much behind Brooke Ben even actually going to Nashville in the first place, uh, you know, basically having him record those two songs, uh, My True Confessions and Hotel Happiness. And I believe actually My True Confessions was co-written by Ray Stevens and actually uh, Shelby Singleton's wife, Marty Singleton, actually also co-wrote uh, you know, my true confessions. So he had a wife who was also signed to Mercury Records. Her name was Margie Singleton, and Shelby Singleton became like the main guy at Mercury. He was the he, he not only was the president of AR in Nashville, but I think he actually became the president of AR for the whole company. Uh, I, th- I I could be wrong about that, but he had a but he had so much leverage and so much clout when he was basically working for Mercury Records in the early 60s, I mean, you know, a lot of people depended on him for hits. I mean, you know, for, I mean, here's the thing. So not only did he supervise the main Mercury record label and producing all the hits for like Brooke Benton and like I said before, uh, Clyde McFadder's Lover Please, but he also overseed their subsidiary label, you know, because uh, again, Mercury had a subsidiary label. And if you're wondering, what do I mean like a subsidiary label? Well, back in those days, you know, songs used to be released by labels. And I, I'm sure you, I'm sure like what? Because nowadays you used to so many artists being their own label. And while that did happen, uh, you know, most songs were released by labels and each label had their own little unique logo that was basically on uh, designed and being imprinted on the 45 imprint for each 45 record that was being released in the 60s. And each song basically had to be released by a label. And basically, each most major labels like Mercury, uh, Columbia, RCA, Atlantic, uh, you know, most of the major labels at the time, Universal, they all had subsidiary labels. Capital had subsidiary labels, too. And basically, the reason why they did this is because, you know, a lot of these labels wanted to genre and diversify themselves. So for certain things that they didn't want to necessarily put out under their own label, they would, they would basically have their heads create their own little subsidiary label that's sort of related to them and basically have that be, you know, the label where that stuff that they don't necessarily want to release on their own label, have that be released on that label instead. Or in a case where their roster is 1,000% full and they can't sign any more artists, they would create a subsidiary label, you know, for other artists to be on that label. But again, they're totally related. I mean, there's there's lots of examples of this. Atlantic Records had Echo Records. Uh, Columbia had Epic. I mean, there's just so many examples of, you know, basically big corporate labels, you know, that basically had their own little subsidiary labels. Capitol Records had Tower Records. Um, you know, Columbia Records also had OK Records. I mean, there's just so many examples of big corporate labels basically having their own little subsidiary label. And the, and basically both of those labels would be run by the same people. And Shelby Singleton, when he became the president of A&R Mercury in Nashville, I mean, I think he, I think he was also the president of A&R for the entire company. 
Uh, he also supervised uh, the releases for Mercury subsidiary label, which was Smash Records. And uh, Smash was basically a subsidiary label set up by Mercury in the early 60s. One of the first big hit releases came out of Texas called Hey Baby. It was written, it was written by Bruce Chanel and Margaret Cobb. Uh, and then Smash was a, was a subsidiary label for Mercury. And, you know, Shelby Singleton basically oversaw most releases on Smash, at least in Nashville. I mean, they had they had executives in New York and Jerry Ross and a couple of other, those other guys, Steve and Bill Jerome. I think they actually oversaw a lot of the, the, the New York stuff that was being released on Smash Records, uh, the stuff that was recorded in that particular city. But Shelby oversaw all the major uh, releases on Smash, you know, which was, again, a subsidiary label merchandise. Records. He oversaw all those releases in the Nashville section of that label, um, and some of the biggest hits that he oversaw, you know, he didn't always produce, but he basically heard these songs and approved of their releases. A lot of the hits that he, you know, had a lot to do with a lot. He had a big hand in as far as making sure this stuff got released, and he probably even talked to some of the promo guys and basically worked with them in conjunction with them to make sure these songs got radio airplay by the DJs and these songs could become hits. Some of these songs include all the big Roger Miller hits. I mean, Dang Me, uh, Chug a Lug, King of the Road, um, a lot of those big Roger Miller hits, Kansas City Star. I mean, all 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 that all the big Roger Miller hits that crossed over onto the pop charts were oversaw by Shelby Singleton. And a cop an- another interesting thing that he oversaw was a was a Nashville country artist that actually started out as sort of a white version of actually another version of Elvis, more actually more pop. His name was Charlie Rich. Um, he oversaw the release of Mohair Sam, which was his one and only uh, top 40 had on the Billboard charts for a while. He would have more success on the country charts in the 70s, but in 1965, actually uh, 55 years ago this month, he would re- he his first big like top 40 hit ever was not in the country charts, but with Mohair Sam. And that release was overseen by Shelby Singleton. Um, Jerry Kennedy, I believe, was the man who produced those those records. He was the guy who who actually went in the studio and worked with Roger Miller and Charlie Rich and oversaw the production for those specific releases. But uh, Shelby Singleton basically became the president of A&R at Mercury Records. But he had so much staying power, you know, with Mercury at that time that he was actually able to uh, essentially... Um, uh, what what he did is that he was able to uh, not only become the pres- head of president of A&R and Mercury Records, but he also even formed his own record label. And he formed two specific record labels in the early 60s. And one of them was the label that this specific, this group specific artist was on. And, you know, again, I'm talking about Peggy Scott and Jojo Benson. Well, he actually signed them to one of his labels in the late 60s, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. So, okay, so we kind of know by now that Shelby Singleton, you know, really was kind of responsible for bringing black musicians to Nashville because, heck, he produced Clyde McFadder's Lover, Please, which was a top 10 hit in 1962, and he also produced Hotel Happiness by Brooke Benton, another black R&B musician, and he also produced... Uh, My True Confession, which was actually, uh, again, co-written by his wife, Margie Singleton, 
And, you know, basically uh, Ray Stevens, who was a classic sort of, uh, you know, uh, country, you know, pop musician in Nashville at that time. Um, but aside from that, uh, what are some other curious things from Nashville that are kind of interesting that kind of fall into that R&B soul kind of a thing? Well, there is a big radio station in Nashville in the 60s called WLAC. WLAC was the biggest uh, R&B station in Nashville, and they played all R&B music all the time. And basically, they were the number one R&B station at that time. And, uh, you know, there were specifically clubs in Nashville specifically for black musicians and people like Little Richard and Chuck Berry and some other uh, musicians, you know, from other states and cities would often go there to play. Um, I think these were also segregated venues, too. But I mean, that's just the way it was in the South at that time. Um, but, yeah, um, another interesting thing about uh, Nashville is that um, one musician that actually spent some time there in the early 60s that and a lot of people don't really know this, but this is totally 100 percent true, um, is that uh, there is a guy named. You might you might have heard of him. Uh, you know, he's just one of those, uh, you know, musicians that you know. I'm sure, like, I'll just say you don't know this guy. Okay, you don't know who he is. He's some obscure dude that nobody's ever heard of. Okay, so you had this guy, right? He was this crazy guitar player, just insane. I mean, people worship him like gods. Uh, you know, he was in the army before he really took off as people really knew about him. And he was stationed in Fort Campbell, which in Clarksville, which is pretty close by to Nashville. And when he was stationed in Clarksville, Tennessee, he met a bass player. And basically, uh, he, he, him and his bass player hit it off immediately. These guys loved each other. I mean, Hendrix was a great guitar player. Uh, you know, this guy was a good bass player. They jammed really cool together. And, you know, they spent a lot of time in Nashville. And basically, um, you know, this musician, you know, that loved this, worshipped this guy so much. A couple years later, he would wind up playing in his band, which, by the way, uh, you know, he, he would play in this band. And then he would play with him in, at Woodstock. And... I'm just going to just tell you who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jimi Hendrix and Billy Cox. Yes. They were both stationed together at Fort Campbell and Clarksville. And then they lit, they moved to Nashville in 62, 63 and played in a bunch of clubs together. Uh, Billy Cox will later go on to join uh, Hendrix's band, Band of Gypsies, and they both played together in Woodstock. That is 100% true. And this all happened before anybody knew who Jimi Hendrix really was. And also, um, the Stones and the Beatles recorded two R&B records that were done in Nashville that weren't necessarily big hits nationally. Some of them were kind of obscure, but one of them was uh, Gene Allison's You Can Make It If You Try, and that was recorded by the Rolling Stones. It never was a hit for them, but I think they did it on, I'm pretty sure they did it on one of their albums. And of course, you know, John Lennon was a huge Arthur Alexander fan, and he recorded, uh, and they recorded a song, one of one of his songs called Anna Go To Him. And they did that off of their, uh, their, their album, Please Please Me. 
yeah, basically they recorded that song for that album, which was Anna Go To Him. Uh, so yeah, so that is totally 100% true. That uh, And that was recorded in Nashville, Arthur Alexander's Anna Go To Him. In fact, uh, the, one of the piano player on that record, his name was Floyd Kramer. Uh, so you can, and he, Floyd Kramer was a member of the A-Team. So yeah, that was definitely recorded in Nashville. Um, so those are just a few things. Uh, there was a there was a show that was syndicated show in Nashville at the time, and it was basically pretty much an a uh, 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 a precursor to a huge black R and B uh, music show that was all about showcasing R and B music at that time. And basically, that show was uh, Soul Train. Well, this show that came out before Soul Train, I believe it was only shown shown in Nashville, but it might have been shown in some other regions of the country too. It was called Night Train, and Night Train was basically like the precursor to Soul Train, and it was the it was the same concept except it was done about ten years before Soul Train even existed, and it actually was done in Nashville. So that's pretty cool. Okay, so let's finally get into the history behind last week's artist and song, which was Peggy Scott and Jojo Penson, and the song was called Lover's Holiday. Okay, so like I said before, I, I'm talking about uh, Shelby Singleton a lot in this episode of this podcast, but I'm mainly talking about him for if you're around my age and don't know anything about him at all. Uh, well, he again, he was the guy really behind... Uh, Mercury, the, the the Nashville division of Mercury Records in the '60s, and he also oversaw releases on Smash Records, um, all the Leroy Van Dyke songs and Ray Stevens and Joe Dowell and all those big hits on Smash. Um, but what happened in the late '60s, in uh, 1966, he actually left Mercury Records and formed two specific labels that were very influential as far as his recording history in Nashville. Um, he formed the SSS International label, which released last week's song, which is Peggy Scott and Jojo Benson's Lover's Holiday. And he, they, and he also formed the Plantation Record label, which released a number one record in 1968. And that song was Jeannie C. Riley's Harper Valley PTA. Both of those songs are recorded in Nashville at Columbia Recording Studios in Nashville. And basically, uh, Harbor Valley BTA by Jeannie C. Riley was the last number one record before the Beatles took uh, the number one spot from her. with hey J- and, and they basically took it with Hey Jude for a long time. So that was one of the last, that was, I think that was the last number one record on Billboard before Hey Jude took it, took it over. Um, but yeah, so this so this specific song by Peggy Scott and Jojo Benson, it was released on the SSS label, and basically it was produced um, by a guy who I actually um, talked about when I did the episode on Roy Head. Um, again, same guy, Huey Moe. And let's talk about Huey Moe for a minute, because I know I mentioned him when I did uh, the episode on Roy Head, but again, he was one of those crazy cage. He, he was nicknamed the Crazy Cajun because he was kind of an out of his mind uh, producer, and you know he was crazy, but at the same time he was a genius because he knew hit songs when he heard them. I mean, you know, he oversaw a lot of big, uh, you know, re- southern releases that became big hits. I mean, the Sir Douglas Quintet, She's About a Mover, uh, Barbara Lynn, You'll Lose a Good Thing, Roy Head's Treat Her Right, and this particular song. 
you know, Lover's Holiday. So he oversaw a lot of different, uh, you know, hit releases that were recorded in the South. And again, like he was really, really big, but he was troubled, too, because he actually got busted for having tapes of kids having sex. Yeah, he was he actually got busted for possession of child pornography and sexual assault of young kids. Yes, and this that was way later. But again, like at the time, he was kind of troubled. But at the same time, he was so influential as far as being the Southern like Phil Spector. And uh, the song, particular song, was recorded at Columbia Recording Studios in Nashville. And as far as the musicians on this uh, particular record, um, you know, the, the, the guitar players on the song uh, are really, really cool uh, musicians. And again, like, um, this kind of, this record came out in the later part of the 60s. So... Um, and again, it was released on Shelby Singleton's SSS label. So since this record came out in the later 60s, some of you might wonder if this had all the same musicians who played on Roy Orbison's Elvis records, you know, uh, the Everly Brothers and Brenda Lee. And the fact of the matter is, is that this doesn't really have any of those musicians on that record. Um, the, the musicians on this particular record were actually part of the second wave of Nashville studio musicians that occurred in the mid to late sixties. And a part, a couple of the people who were a part of that second wave of Nashville studio musicians who weren't by the way, called the Nashville a team. It was a completely different set of musicians. And uh, a lot of the, uh, this, this group of guys actually contained musicians who were originally a part of the Muscle Shoals rhythm section in the early 60s, but then they moved out of Muscle Shoals and basically moved to Nashville. And, uh, you know, they, they actually went to earn a completely different name other than the Nashville 8 team. And these guys were known as Area Code 615. And uh, basically they became like the new uh, hot group of hotshot studio musicians working in Nashville in the late 60s. Um, you know, a lot of these guys played on, I mean, for example, one of the biggest hit songs that they, one of the biggest hit albums they played on was Bob Dylan's Nashville Skyline, which came out in 1969, which had Lady Lay on it. So you can just see that a lot of these, a lot of those, you know, uh, that that's how big this group of studio musicians were on this uh, particular record. Um, so yeah, so let me just, let me just give you a little breakdown for exactly who were uh, the, the musicians, um, you know, on this particular record. Um, the bass player was a guy named Tim Drummond. Uh, Tim Drummond actually previously, before he even moved to Nashville, he played on a lot of James Brown records, specifically Lick and Stick, Lick and Stick. And, you know, he also, the guitar player on this record, along with uh, Troy Seals, was a guy named Matt Gaten. Now, Matt Gaten actually recorded one of the biggest hits R&B singles that came out in Nashville in the early 60s, sorry, in the late 60s. Um, and this was a huge hit song that basically was covered by dozens of people. Gloria Estevan, U2, Carl Carlton, so many people recorded the song. He co-wrote it and he produced it too. That song was called Everlasting Love and that song was recorded by Robert Knight. And done in a different studio though, at Fred Foster Studios, not the studio where this was recorded at, because again, this was recorded at Columbia Recording Studios in Nashville. But again, he co-produced that song and he's actually playing on this particular record. Yeah. So Matt Gain and Troy Seals on guitar, and Tim Drummond is on bass, and Keddie Bunnery is the drummer. 
Kenny Buttery, again, like he was so much an integral part of Area Code 615 that, you know, he's on so many famous records that came out of Nashville in the late 60s. I mean, for example, uh, he's on Lay Lady Delay by Bob Dylan. Uh, he's one of the musicians on that record. And basically, uh, he, you know, he's on, he's also on Blonde on Blonde. And, uh, you know, it's so cool. I mean, basically, you know, he's on so many hits at that time. And he was such an integral part to that whole, uh, basically, that second wave of Nashville studio musicians. And a lot of these songs were recorded at Soundstage 7's recording studio, which was basically based in New Music City, which was in Nashville. But this particular record was recorded at uh, Columbia Recording Studios in Nashville. Now, uh, Peggy Scott and JoJo Benson uh, actually had um, more than one hit. They were not a one-hit wonder. Um, just to give you an example, um, their their next hit song was a song called "The Pickin' Wild Mountain Berries," uh, you know, which was their next follow-up hit, you know, to uh, you know, "Lover's Holiday." Um, and their next single after that was another hit. Again, all these all these songs had that really cool Nashville R and B sound. And the next hit after "Pickin' Wild Mountain Berries" was "Soul Shake." Now, Soul Shake has something really, really cool on it. Um, there is a ele- choral electric guitar on Soul Shake, and it sounds amazing. It sounds so dope. And the guy who played on that guy who played that electric choral electric guitar on that record was Jerry Kennedy. Jerry Kennedy again was very much another one of those musicians who was involved in the second wave of Nashville. Uh, studio musicians, again, not the Nashville A-Team with Bob Moore and Buddy Harmon and Floyd Kramer, not those guys, but Area Code 615. And he was very much a part of that whole uh, specific uh, scene. And again, his name, his name was Jerry Kennedy, and he's the one who played that electric guitar on that record. Um, as far as who wrote Lover's Holiday, it was written by Bob McCree and Don Thomas, and Ed Thomas. Basically, those are those are the th- the three writers on Lover's Holiday, and they actually sorry it was I take that back. It's uh, Cliff Thomas and Ed Thomas and Bob McGree. Sorry, Don Thomas is a totally different writer. Uh, he actually co-wrote um, "This Door Swings Both Ways" by Hermit's Hermits, but that's a totally different story for a totally different episode of the podcast. So Cliff and Ed Thomas and Bob McCree were the writers behind Lover's Holiday, and by the way, these are all white musicians. So there is definitely a gumbo thing happening with with this particular uh, song, almost kind of like a thing that was happening with uh, the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. Uh, it's a similar kind of thing happening in Nashville, you know. And uh, by the way, this is in the late '60s, so I mean, de- you know, Nashville is so desegregated by this time, you know, that I mean, all pretty much all the musicians on this particular record, they're all white guys. Tim Drummond was white, Matt Gaden was white, Kenny Buttery was white. Um, you know, I mean, they were all white musicians, you know. So again, it's as Shelby Singleton was white, Huey Moe was white. I mean, they're all white guys, and they're backing up this really soulful record by Peggy Scott and JoJo Benson. I mean, you had white songwriters writing the song too. And again, that is just so cool that, you know, these white musicians are getting to the soul of you know, Southern soul happening with this particular song. And that is just incredible. 
I mean, again, and it kind of feels like what was happening in New York in the early 60s, too, with like the Brill Building. This was almost it, this the Nashville was creating kind of their own version of that with this particular song. And, uh, you know, also uh, another another single that came out, sh- you know, shortly after um, Lover's Holiday and Picking Wild Mountain Berries that followed the same pattern and featured basically the same musicians um, was The Choking Kind by Joe Simon. Um, and by the way, um, Shelby Singleton bought out Sam Phillips's entire catalog, uh, you know, from Sun Records. So he acquired basically all the all the original masters from Sun, including all the Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash singles that were originally released on Sun in the early '50s before they went on to their respective record labels. So uh, as you can imagine, Sam Phillips basically became a part of that team, and he actually had a hand in recording Joe Simon's A Choking Kind, which, again, very much affiliated with that whole Shelby Singleton SSL label uh, kind of a thing, except it was on different label. I'm pretty sure it was on Soundstage 7 Records. But again, same musicians, uh, different studio, too. I think it was actually recorded at Music City Recorders in Nashville, different studio, other than Columbia Recording Studios, which is where Peggy Scott and JoJo Benson recorded this song. Um, so that kind of wraps up, you know, the history behind, uh, this particular record. Um, you know, I mean, just, just, I want you to think about, you know, if you don't know anything about the, 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 the R&B scene in Nashville, this should give you a really good example of this. Oh, and one more thing, Bobby Hebb, who basically had a huge hit with Sonny, and that was recorded in New York, but his entire family was record, was was based in Nashville, and every everyone that he knew was basically, uh, you know, the, the all of his family and every, all of his ties were in Nashville. So he was an another arm black R and B singer that actually record uh, didn't record in in Nashville. All all of his stuff was done in New York, but he had ties in Nashville, and that's pretty cool. So again, that's another you know you know black musician that was affiliated with uh with nashville and a lot of there was a lot of local stuff too released on and the excel label and some other stuff you know so again i mean i mean there there's some other uh, one one early example of an a, a doo-wop record that was recorded in nashville that had that black sound which had a black group recording was a velvet's night could be the night and that was another early example of that but again that was you know way before uh you know you know it, any any of those things I just talked about around the same time it was recorded in 1961 so it came out a year before Brooke Bend and Clyde McFadder but still you know those are some really early examples of Nashville R&B which is something people don't really think about when they think about Music City I mean all they ever talk about is basically uh you know the country music that came out of that particular era so hopefully this will give you a good idea for the sort of the uh, some of the not so remembered or not so as celebrated parts of nashville's music history um i hope you learned some stuff from it you know if you're around my age you didn't know any of this stuff you know i hope you learned a lot from it so yeah um shelby singleton actually did produce all those big brookben uh, r&b hits recorded in nashville hotel happiness my true confessions and he also produced Clyde McFadder's Lover Place. So he was really the one who brought those two black R&B musicians to Nashville and really kickstarted the whole R&B scene in that particular area, you know, and brought it to more of a national level. And uh, also, uh, again, another another cool part, uh, uh, another cool tie-in with uh, Clyde McFadder's Lover Please. That song was written by a guy named Billy Swan. Billy Swan had a huge number one hit 
in in the 70s 1974 with a song called I Can Help and before all of that he, he actually wrote Lover Police by Clyde McFadden which was a huge hit in February 1960 you've actually predated Hotel Happiness which came out later on in 1972, like November, December, and it became a big hit, like late 62, early 63. And then that was followed by My True Confessions, which came out in the spring of 1963. Okay, so that concludes part two, episode number 115 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you learned some really cool and interesting facts about the R&B music scene in Nashville, you never knew anything about it. He always thought of Nashville as more of a country music town, and he never knew anything about the R&B music that came out of that area. And he learned so much about it um, from listening to this episode. Please email me at samltwilliacloud.com, especially if you're a millennial and you're just around my age and just learning about this stuff. And uh, you can also reach out to me on Instagram and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. And everything you can check out are the two official Spotify and YouTube playlists for this podcast. There you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some of the ones I mentioned in interview episodes. Um, if you listen to those playlists, and and this should give you a good idea for the kind of music I talk about on my show. So if listening to this playlist gives you any idea for the gives you some ideas for the kind of stuff I should talk about next on my podcast that I haven't yet, you can email those ideas to me at samltwilliacloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and let me know what kind of songs to talk about next on my podcast that I haven't yet. Hopefully you'll get some of those ideas from listening to those playlists, um, regardless if you have Spotify or YouTube, depending on what platform you have. Um, but yeah, so you can also check out the official Redbubble merch store for this podcast. You'll be able to find the super cool merch store that uh, has my own specific logo for this podcast. Um, you know, basically, uh, it's my own custom logo for the show. Um, you can purchase anything from the store. It'll ship right to your door. Um, if you like the logo and you decide you want to purchase something or if you want to just give me feedback on the logo itself and the price of each item in the store, please email me at samltwilliacloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram, iHeartOldies, and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Um, so basically, uh, yeah, so my email at samltwilliacloud.com. It's also in the description of this episode of this podcast. So. Um, you can also find last week's song in the description of this episode of the podcast too, if you want to listen to it again. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I'll let, I'll let you guys know if next week's episode is going to be interview episodes or if it's just going to be just me. Um, I haven't quite figured that out yet, but I'll let you guys know as soon as I do that. Um, it's going to be super cool. I'm very excited for that. Um, but yeah, and I'll be definitely taking, uh, the week of my birthday off. Um, please wish me a happy birthday if you like to. Um, I really appreciate that. It's and that's going to be on November second, so I'll be taking that week off. So, um, yeah. So that's basically what's happening. Um, I'll keep you guys posted on the Grand Museum opportunity, and me possibly, uh, you know, and what's happening with my book. I'll keep. I'll let you guys know when when, when all that stuff's in motion, and and it is. You know, I just got to do some work to my book and hope that Grammy op- Grand Museum opportunity goes through. But yeah, so I'm Sam Williams, and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, police! Keep things groovy.